been beautiful today in the interview groups to feel the practice deepening and surprising people. Generally, uh, one of the themes that I noted is that um, what happens isn't what we expect. And people will say, um, (coughs) I recall my earlier practice when there was a lot of um, turmoil and now I feel really calm and I'm having to get used to that. (laughs) I don't know if I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Or some of you working with the instructions of really precise awareness that Pascal offered this morning, which um, seems to me to be just a, a really nice time in the retreat. Um, we were talking about how if the precise instruction about the breath is given in the beginning, then suddenly people have all these emotions and it doesn't really fit in your nose to have the emotions and you start to feel like something's like wrong. Um, or people finding um, things opening up or difficulty that comes with us um, into retreat from life and actually finding an appreciation for the beauty of that or the the reason why um, some of my life came with me here and the ability to deal with that in such a beautiful way. And there's such a diversity of people and experiences. It's really so rich. And I know since you've all been in groups by now, I think pretty much, then you know this too, that you've been able to hear a sort of a sampling um, of what's happening. So I find that my own heart as a teacher here is really um, opened by the experience both of the practice and of the interconnection with you all. I was quite touched last night by the um, being reminded of the Buddha's experience under the rose apple tree in the in the shade, that it was this tender experience as a child, that memory of a childhood memory that uh, is really the, in a sense, the inspiration for this entire path of practice. So I wanted to talk about that, about the tenderness and openness of practice and various aspects of what we've presented here um, to try to bring together a little bit in the retreat um, the category of appreciation and the loving kindness side that we presented sort of um, in the openness practice at the beginning then beginning to uh, describe the joy of concentration and then maybe to hint a little bit at the joy of liberation that is sort of another piece of the Buddhist path. T.S. Eliot talked about liberation in one of his poems as a condition of absolute simplicity, costing not less than everything. And I was an English major when I first was reading this and there's something about absolute simplicity and costing everything that makes it sound really rather dire and intense. So I wanted to tell a story of um, my own meditation practice and instruction when I was a a nun in Burma, in Rangoon in 1988, and really 
striving really hard for liberation along a very structured path of practice that included a lot of this um, extremely precise awareness that we were doing this morning, but um, finding a kind of relaxation and precision, but also not really sure about how tightly or loosely I should hold the frame of my practice in general, like the way that you move through a retreat center and how much time you spend sitting and walking and whether you go and lie down in your room or we were asked to practice about be awake 20 hours a day and no dinner kind of thing. I mean, these are legendary, like old war stories of our practice, but um, all the women from the West were we all on one dorm and we had our own meditation hall. So there were about 12 of us. And uh, in the rainy season, somebody came in and we each were given our own pink mosquito net. So we were sitting there like little cupcakes or Martians, each (laughs) underneath a pink mosquito net. And Burmese people would come and hang in the windows and sometimes just watch us meditate because they hadn't seen very many foreign people, especially that was a long time ago in 1988 when the country was much more closed. So so I'd sit down and I'd shut my eyes and I'd think that little boy who's hanging there, I really hope he's gone when I opened my eyes. And I (laughs) opened my eyes a few times and a lot of times he would still be there. So I went to the office and complained. And then they... (laughs) They put a sign outside our thing saying, foreigner women are meditate. meditating, do not give them food and do not talk to them and do not stare. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> but my experience of the other women there was that they were doing better than me because they would just get up from their seat and... Um, they would start walking. Since there weren't so many of us, we were all sort of sat in a row and everybody had a straw mat in front of their cushion where you could do walking meditation. They would just get and walk up and down in the same hall that they were in. And we had to be barefoot in there. And the, I found the mats very sticky in an unpleasant way for my feet. So I would put on my shoes and go walk somewhere else where there was actually more entertainment. There were crows and people sweeping and I could see some of the Burmese life happening and I started to feel guilty that I was having too much fun, which is something that I've, a theme that I've heard here from some of you have said, am I having too much fun? So at some point I decided like, my practice has to cost me my fun, you know, and the people who are strictly marching up and down are doing it right. But I finally thought I have to confess this to my teacher. Um, the also legendary Sayada Upandita, who is um, often, they raise him up as a skeleton to say like, well, it's not like Sayada Upandita. But actually at this time, he was very sweet with me. I was embarrassed and ashamed. And I said, well, you know, I actually go outside and walk. I don't walk up and down inside the foreigner women's meditation hall. (laughs) And he said, you should walk wherever you feel like walking. You should walk where you feel comfortable, where you find ease. And I was like, okay, like I have permission now to kind of live my life within this practice, even if I'm practicing very hard. So this is similar to what uh, Pascal was saying this morning about what expectations do we bring into the meditation practice about how we should be doing things or what kinds of experiences we should be having. I feel like we've said this so many times, but it just can't be said often enough that The practice is really where we are and the openness of heart to what's happening for us, whether we're choosing to be quite 
microscopic in our attention um, on one breath at a time or whether we're watching the panorama and just being there for whatever arises um, that what's right in the practice is often there's a way of being able to balance making an effort with having some ease and each of us needs to find the art of that the skill in that um, of how to do it just as we see when people are masters of some sort of art um, one of the staff members this morning was telling me about visiting a famous organic person whose name I can't quite remember now he and his wife oh the Nearings Scott Helen and Scott Nearing and that when he was something like 97 years old she saw him um, shoveling straw onto a bed of vegetables and she said at first she looked at him and she thought maybe he's just so old and tired because he didn't seem to be making any effort it was just sliding a pitchfork underneath some straw and then putting it on top of these plants to shelter them for the winter and then she got up closer to him and she saw the like the incredible light in his eyes like there's no lack of energy here but the way that he's doing it is really very um gentle so I want to encourage us to find the joy and skill of that kind of balance like how do we meet our life like what way do we relate to what's coming up for us there's a way of connecting and also letting go at the same time in the connection like not expecting something from the connection that we make but just kind of doing it for its own sake and it's out of that soil there's a kind of disinterest or humility or generosity as pascal has said of offering ourselves to the experience in this very open way that um, becomes like something very rich for experiences to flower it allows um, our kind of human or egoic agenda not to taint the experience or change the object or try to make our experience look the way we think it should So even in the ability to be grateful for things that we've talked about, like to appreciate um, the goodness of life, there's a type of openness and humility that's required to admit that uh, we rejoice in things and they're things that support us in our life. Even just, you know, sometimes the floor or the cushion, the beginning of a sitting, I'll like acknowledge the support of the floor or the cushion or how amazing it is to have one more day of life with um, all of our hands and feet. Um, If we have hands, if we have feet. That this quality of gratitude can become a form of attention, can become an attention enhancer to look at our experience without taking it for granted, without allowing sort of our habits to drive us into what we think the next thing that we should do should be. Or our habit of taking a certain kind of position about what we're experiencing or who we are as if it isn't good enough or it isn't the right thing or we're hoping for our concentration to improve tomorrow or for the sleepiness to go away. Again, in the interview groups, sometimes afterwards I feel this sense of just such love for the tenacity of each person for the ones who are struggling or the ones who are feeling at ease and the perfection of each person's state um, so much in in some cases unseen that 
here we are like in this room together, the only time we'll ever be together in this way. Um, is this good enough for us? Like, are we waiting for something else to happen? There's a legend in the Buddhist canon. I'm not sure if it comes from a sutra or just from some of the folklore that's accumulated in this ancient culture about the Adumvara flower. I don't know if some of you have heard of the Adumvara flower, have you? That supposedly, like Buddhism is fond of these like incredible stretches of time, um, like vast eons. Like they started thinking about more than one big bang before current astrophysics did. And we're proud of ourselves for that. Um, <laughs> that there have been other universes and maybe they had different kinds of space-time laws and stuff like that. But in every great eon, there's only one Adumvara flower that's the most beautiful flower that will ever be uh, in that particular universe. And it hangs in space. It just is a self-generated incredible thing that has this perfume and this beauty and I don't know what color you might be visualizing it. Some may see it red or white or just different kinds of, you know how those um, LED lights keep changing their colors, you know, those rainbow ones that shift imperceptibly from yellow to green to blue to purple to red again. So this Adumvara flower, um, it only lives for one day out of every eon. Um, And the, you know, of course the resolution of this myth is that that flower is yourself, That's, that's you or that's each one of us, like, as far as we know, there's, hasn't been another one of us, or of any of us. Um, And it goes down to this almost like pixel-like thing where each thing that happens is really like that. Each breath that happens is really like that, other than the way our habits see it is like, ah, just another breath, you know, it's not really that interesting. Um, On to the next more exciting thing. But the exquisiteness of how our experience takes form and dissolves moment by moment is something that our practice uh, of deeper attention can make available to us. So that um, stage four of the breath, I guess, is um, you know deliber- using the intention and bringing to mind, like empowering the attention from just noticing one breath noticing that the breath is happening, then noticing some of the qualities of each particular breath, then sort of staying loyal or extending the attention, which means putting more energy into the attention so that you're with the breath from the so-called beginning to the so-called end, which is actually just a construct anyway, so that you're really awake to it. And then bringing a little more intention into it, like bringing more of your, like, sense of the whole psyche in it, like that there's a purpose for why we're paying attention like this. Then after that, there's joy and other stages that follow from the intensity of attention to where one breath can occasionally seem like more than the greatest artistic masterpiece you've ever seen. Not because the breath is that way, or maybe because the breath is that way, but because of the interactivity of the quality of attention that comes um, into the picture which is something that we have some influence over, that is something that we can value. It's a a kind of investment that we can make. It's not just with the breath. It's taking care with our life on whatever scale and whatever style um, each one of us finds more interesting. Like some people are not 
um, you know, sort of the tiny attention to the breath is not conducive. It may not feel relational to you. It may not feel like it helps you with your interpersonal life. And in that case, maybe loving kindness or openness meditation is better. Like there's really very many different styles of attention and concentration. Pascal was mentioning this morning. But it, they all have in common that um, there's a type of gathering of our energy and uh, through awareness and waking up to and kind of um, electrifying some of the potential that's in our consciousness um, that's untapped. And that's what we're doing here um, in different ways. And as the practice deepens, we'll feel it. You know, the habit energy kind of comes and goes, like it's been going on for a long time. Like, and also the Buddhist legend is that it's um, the energy of our, you know, bad habits or whatever also began at the beginning of time. <laughs> you know, like there's no saying that there was a beginning to it. But what we're doing here is kind of opening up our awareness so that the habit energy kind of um, be- begins to take more and more of a back seat, so that we can start to have a different um, access to a different kind of vision of of our life or of reality of our potential. Like the poem that I read this morning where it said, if we could only see people as they really are, soaked in honey, stunned and swollen, reckless and pinned against time. You know, how much do we go through our life seeing um, someone who's giving us change just as the source of the correct change or not, you know, that um, it's sad that we reduce people to that. And I, you know, I'm guilty of reducing my husband to that at times. You know, the person I live the closest to is kind of like, well, I just, I know what, you know, he doesn't like to get up before 10 in the morning. (laughs) And so that becomes like just the thought of his not wanting to get up before 10 becomes like the handle by which my mind will hold him if I don't make a little bit more of an effort, you know. Um, Actually, the fact that he won't, uh, that he designs his entire life around this is unusual enough that it does remind me that there's a whole person (laughs) behind it, I have to say, like it's a little bit eccentric. (laughs) He's a professor and he's, um, he actually does work and stuff, you know. (laughs) (laughs) sometimes his daughter says like this is the only thing you could have been dad whereas Kate could have been anything (laughs) so I want to say that like from the simplest practice of gratitude uh, Meister Eckhart said um, if the only prayer you ever say is thank you that could be sufficient um the gratitude itself, this simple practice from the like beginner's practice, um, opens our mind to this wonder of life. This seclusion of attention and gentle kind of childlike precise awareness also um, develops that uh, capacity to see that um, through our attention we can see that this breath is not the same as the next breath. And you can even get in there more closely and start to see that the way that awareness and experience interact is really like fascinating in itself. Like the knowing of something, like there's not just something, there's also the knowing and there's also the way it feels. 
And there's also the way the mind responds. So there's, you know, an experience has so many different scintillating sides to it that we're actually able to perceive, which is really quite miraculous. You know, someone was talking in the interviews about hearing that little sound when the microphone goes on, and then starting to wait to see if Pascal or I are going to say something, you know, <laughs> like that it's like the Pavlov dog thing, you hear the click and then all of a sudden there's like, you know, that in itself is part of one of those sequences. There's a sound and then there's a response, you know, and then there's anticipation and then there's, it will be like some kind of body sensation and then there'll be waiting and the waiting prolongs and then maybe kind of like, well, maybe they're not going to say anything, you know, a new thought. Maybe they won't say anything after all, you know, and then the attention returns to the personal experience, um, maybe feeling as if it's gone away somewhere and then is coming back. I mean, it's all really rather odd if you start to look into it more. So what can charge or um, give this kind of sort of um, intensity to our awareness? In part, that's what the retreat is about, is coming here and having these kinds of conditions that make it easier because you have given up your cell phones and you have sat through the boredom, which is almost like scratching the surface off of your habits um, because there's the sitting and the walking and the instructions. Um, So there's a quality of attention that is almost like remorselessly drummed into you here that um, is supported by these conditions. But there's also the, you know, each person's putting your heart into this. Um, which is kind of a form of love, I would say, you know. I don't know how you felt when, um, also maybe in the groups, is to feel into each other's experience, like the kind of almost natural love that grows when you somebody's open and really telling the truth about what's happening for them. You know, and even if it sounds like their heart is breaking, how beautiful it can be to be in presence with each other through that type of experience. You know, we naturally gravitate to that. Or seeing this uh, very gentle snow falling outside, whether it's the panorama of all of it and how the falling of the snow brings a kind of silence. And is the silence in the snow or is the silence in your heart, if you look closely, which can you really make a separation between those? Or the melting of one snowflake on your tongue, as the as the Northerners like to talk about. I don't know. I grew up in South America, and not so into the snowflake childhood things. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so the Buddha actually he was quite um, modest in describing the outcomes of the practice because I think um, the sense was more about. Uh, dismantling habits and dismantling suffering and then allowing each person to um, make their own discovery like there were no images of the Buddha in the Buddha's time he forbade it because he didn't want there to be a model out ahead of of us you know he really wanted the practice to be happening in here so it's kind of given to you there's sort of there's a type of road map and guidance and a lot of instructions but really the the path is so much inward that 
he didn't want to say that there's a particular like universalized outcome. So now, as a result, everyone fights about what liberation is or what nirvana is, like whether it you know you're still experiencing something in a very clean way or whether it has to do with you know an aw- infinite awareness or oneness or nonness or you know cessation or whatever that might be. But it's when your process is not conditioned by the suffering ways of relating to our life. Um, When we're no longer conditioned by, you know, those times when we feel like extremely stuck in something. I think you all have all noticed that in your life, like the obsessive things or the reactive pieces And then I don't know if you've ever noticed that those things are temporary, like they're not happening all day, every day. I think we would all be dead if the most intense mental storms were actually continuous. You know, they come back again. And then you think like, here it is again, or this is me or something like that. And we don't actually see that each emotional storm is like a a Dumbra flower also, that it's happening this time. It's not happening Um, as a representative of eternity. It's like one moment of remembering your angry parent or something like that. One moment of bringing back that argument or maybe half an hour of bringing back that argument. But because of the way the mind works, it's like we get what's called like fixated in there or that's clinging or identification where it starts to feel like this is me and this is real and... I'm in here somehow, like um, I'm defined by this. But if we actually look more closely, all of those mental events are also just the same as the breath. So one of the reasons it's useful to look at the breath or to feel very closely into the arising and passing away of each step as you walk. So we're encouraging this like more precise attention and slowing down a little bit so that the mind becomes accustomed to seeing that these things are impermanent. It starts getting used to it and being interested in, you know, the one tea bag or the one step or the one moment or the one encounter. Um, and it can make your life feel so interesting and poignant when you take away the habit of feeling like everything's being repeated again and again. Now, for efficiency in your brain, like it's good that the brain forms habits that you actually can learn how to walk and thereafter you walk without having to devote a huge amount of mental resources to figuring out how to walk every single time. Like you remember everyone was a baby at some point and didn't know how or to talk or what your name was or words, you know, all of that stuff that's kind of in our brain, like active now is came in at some point. And now it's sort of working, which is why this analogy of a childlike state is used often in spiritual practice, that you want to sort of get rid of this, all the overlay that culture has put upon us. It doesn't mean exactly becoming like witless or anything again, but it means sort of opening up in that certain fresh way that Pascal described so beautifully the other night. Sort of from paying attention to the poetry of... um, Oh, into paying attention to the poetry of one moment. Um, Like the way a little child can get absorbed with a leaf. You know, people who are parents and have little kids and see how it sort of kneels down and wants to play with a stick in one puddle or something or like pick up one leaf and look at it. And Or I know Bob Agolio, who used to be the executive director here, has this beautiful story of his little grandchild like 
blowing soap bubbles and like running after each one on the grass and saying, don't pop, don't pop, <laughs> you know, like that just the, you know, intensity of attention and, and freshness and sort of playfulness um, is something that's kind of buried in there for us. So the Zen poet Basho said, you can learn about the pine only from the pine or about bamboo only from bamboo. The object and you must become one. And from this feeling of oneness comes your poetry. Or Wallace Stevens, a Western poet, you must become an ignorant person again and see the world with an ignorant eye. Which I think he said it in an ugly way to be dramatic, kind of. So it's not really like a child's mind, but it is a little bit like a child's mind. I encourage you to um, think of your practice a little bit more like child's play, you know. And in the coming last full day that we have. And what happens um, in the deepening of practice, I'll just hint a little bit more into this, is that um, this impermanence or this uniqueness, you start to see that things... um, arise and dissolve, like they take form and then they go away. And we have this on a relatively unrefined level when you see that, um, you know, you've finished your cup of tea and then it's time to get up and wash it and you kind of move from one thing to another or your attention isn't really very stable and it's all over the place. Like what happens is you get distressed, you don't get interested in it. It's more interesting if you get interested. I remember once when I was quite focused and concentrated, I started having this really odd experience as if these Venetian blinds were open, like the world would appear and disappear. And when it was gone, it seemed that it was really gone. And it was like, this is really strange. And what happened was that my perception had slowed down enough that the blinking of my eyes was becoming kind of obvious. So I, for minutes, I wasn't, for moments, I wasn't seeing anything. I was really aware that I wasn't seeing anything, but it was just that everybody blinks multiple times a minute and I wasn't, my mind wasn't artificially stitching together a, con- a continuity out of it. So it was really fun. It only happened once and then it went away. <laughs> but when you see those things, you find it um, quite exciting and they're often a sign of your practice getting a little bit deeper. So how to do that is to pay some pretty good attention in your body when you're... Um, when you're practicing. That's one of the basic ways, like to really slow down so that the habit of going somewhere, we've said this before, like really be interested in how walking consists of picking up one foot and moving it forward. Like what kind of animal is this that we are? You know, with these feet, you know, which I think they used to be fish fins. They just got really long, (laughs) you know, back in the day. As we start to see this, um, when these habits break down, it's not only something joyous and blissful, like in the absence of this kind of tedious overlay, it's also access to a finding of a different vision sort of for humanity. As the Vijaya Sutta, the Buddha um, said, you know, 1600 years ago, how except with lack of insight could we exalt ourselves or disparage one another because of having a body? Um, Any kind of body. And just think of all the incredible suffering that comes about in our world by classifying the differences in bodies, like in age or ability or skin color or 
size. Like how many of us have not felt something's wrong with our body based on what, you know, based on some kind of internalized oppression. But if we can live in what the actual much more basic nature of the body is as revealed through this practice, there's a gateway to sort of decolonizing your mind, as our friend Bonnie Duran likes to say. And I want to say here that um, the Buddhist vision of of the world, uh, or this, it's almost not a vision of the world, it's more like a way of being, or a way of practicing, or a set of skill set to develop. It's not the only one. You know, it seems to be that it's one of the good ones. And it might be that a better one will be developed, or a better one already has been developed, but this is what happens when you pay attention in this particular way, it's said. And there may not, it doesn't, I don't know if it necessarily even means anything about the universe, like the nature of the universe, other than that the universe that we live in or as a human being is, you know, it'll open up along these lines. So the universe at least does have that property that as we see in this way, we start to see, we start to be freed from a lot of the concepts of our society or the ways that um, reality seems to be constructed. So we start to just be able to see like the fundamental organic nature of the body, not so much all the cultural identities that are plastered on top of it. It doesn't mean that you can never get your cultural identities back or that there's no richness in that, but it's sometimes worthwhile to see deeper than that. So we suggest that you do something like Sayada Utejaniya likes to say, when you brush your teeth... Uh, what's your other hand doing? Does anybody know what you do with your other hand <laughs> when you're brushing your teeth? <laughs> or feeling into the body, like start to study the felt sense of the body, like all these tinglings and things. Is that actually a body or is that something that a body that we can't know in any other way is just telling us that, you know, signals that we need to know? Like when you have to pee, this piercing signal comes up through every layer of consciousness and says, like, get up and go, you know? Like, you know, we take all that for granted. It's really all very uh, odd. When you feel like your jaw is tight and you think, like, oh, I'm such an anxious person, what if you were to study the tightness of your jaw or the hardness in that place and start to feel, like, where along the scale of hardness is this? And is this the same kind of hard sensation that um, you feel when you touch the wooden floor? So is the hardness in my jaw really belonging to me or is it also the same as um, sort of what you would call solidity anywhere in this world? And what does it feel like when we participate, when our experience participates in the world in that kind of less divided way? or getting close to the breath and knowing that it's um, air that is going in and out, not, um, not owned, taken in and let go um, by the body just naturally. When you attune to that rhythm, there's many things that our mind can start to know that are uh, very beautiful. And for some reason, when they come into the mind in this way, they have a quality of freshness or joyousness to be able to know our world this way, with the ignorant eye. 
I don't know um, who wrote this small poem, but I like it very much. Um, no one lives our life disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled from voices and fears and little pleasures. We come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks. Somewhere there must be storehouses where all our lives are laid away like suits of armor or old carriages or clothes hanging limply on the walls. Maybe all paths lead to this repository of unlived things. So to close it, this is a sort of metaphorical uh, way of talking about it, but in Somerville every year there's a, um, you know, those open studio things that communities will have where people who live in artists' buildings will open up their living space or their studio space and you can go tour through it. And there's this place called Brick Bottom, which every year has this, and sometimes my husband and I go. And you go in and, like, the artist will have like wine and snacks and cheese and grapes and stuff um, in there to keep you there and maybe try to sell um, some of their beautiful work. So there's paintings of dogs and chairs and different kinds of odd electronic gadgets and things made out of glass and people with their collections and things like this. And in one of the ones that we went into, it was um, somebody who works at the Harvard Observatory and he takes pictures through the telescope um, of different nebulae and quasars or whatever, you know, all these incredible, you've probably seen those Hubble Space Telescope pictures of galaxies and how beautiful they are. So we started talking to him. He also had some of the best snacks and he really had made an effort. (laughs) And he wasn't really like, part of what was beautiful about it was he wasn't really trying to sell his work. Not that it's not beautiful to, you know, make a living as an artist and sell your work, but it was just that he wanted to talk about this thing that he loved so much, which was his pictures of galaxies. And Then he said, well, all the wavelengths are artificially colored. Like, these are just ways of representing the wavelengths so that you can understand that all these galaxies are just kind of different kinds of energy out there, you know, that we see as colors, which is really the same thing our eyes are doing. Like, there isn't colors out there, you know. It's everything that we live through is a kind of interpretation that our mind and body system is doing, but we take it as being like the real world and in part I think why we take it to be the real world is because it doesn't always do what we want and that might be what you know why we say like getting real (laughs) like it doesn't always behave according to our will but it's actually quite something fantastical you know that um, everything that we see is something that we've participated in so much more deeply than we acknowledge Um, the interconnection. And as you start to see that kind of interconnection, there's an opening up around what um, you might call the sense of the ego, like the little ego that wants to control everything into something much more majestic, I think. So the oldest um, printed book is the Diamond Sutra, which is a Buddhist text or a long Buddhist poem. Um, Thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. I think that's one of the most beautiful things ever written, really. Um, 
myself. I'll read it again. Thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a a phantom, and a dream. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's sit for a minute together. A couple minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.